0: Well, good morning. Welcome to Cornerstone Bible Church. Uh, one quick announcement. There is, uh, no men's ministry tomorrow. It's always on the uh, second and the fourth Monday, so it will be on the 12th. So again, if you're a man, you should be a part of that, but not tomorrow, but on the 12th, alright? Uh, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for an opportunity to uh, gather this morning and to turn to your word and then worship you through that word. And, uh, we're excited to hear what you have to teach us this morning. So guide our time, open our hearts, uh, help us to grow uh, in our knowledge of you, our God, and grow in our love for Christ our Savior. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you see, this morning we have the great privilege of taking the Lord's Supper together, and I think we're in a very uh, appropriate portion of Scripture, uh, and I want you to take your uh, to, to do that. Take your Bible and open to Leviticus chapter 16, Uh, We're just going to kind of do a high-level look here, but Leviticus 16, I'll remind you this is the uh, third and the final installment in our high-level overview of uh, Leviticus, as we are uh, really heading uh, towards our exposition of the book of Hebrews. And I told you the book of Hebrews is primarily written to a Jewish audience, most of whom are converts to Christ. They would have a fundamental understanding of uh, Leviticus uh, and the principles that are contained in that book. And so what I thought would be helpful for us is just to go back and pick up some of those major principles, some major points uh, before we enter into our exposition of Hebrews, just to kind of give us a little bit of a background. We began the first time by looking at the sacrificial system uh, that the Lord himself gave uh, and set up at the beginning of the book of Leviticus, uh, answering basically the question, how can a sinner ever uh, approach a holy God? Because no mere man can ever come into God's presence in his own merit, and the Jews knew that. Uh, the Jews knew that it was a dangerous thing to approach God, that no man can see God and live, as it says in Exodus thirty-three twenty. Man has to be forgiven. His sin has to be covered. And the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Hebrews 9, verse 22. So God and God alone is the only one who can determine how men can come near him, how men might enter into relationship with him, how men might worship him. And as we've seen, it, it, the only way to approach God is by way of uh, uh, blood sacrifice. I told you the whole Old Testament sacrificial system was intentionally uh, gruesome uh, and purposefully offensive. It it was shocking to the senses uh, because it was overwhelmingly bloody. And the Old Testament sacrificial system is completely opposite to any kind of man-made religious system because man-made religious systems are always full of pomp and circumstance and ceremony and glamour and and ornate uh, images and candles and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but only God himself provides access, or God alone provides access to him, uh, to himself through the shedding of blood. So man's system and God's system is completely different. And, and again, the sacrificial system was unspeakably uh, gruesome, uh, again, purposefully uh, offensive uh, to the sensitives of, uh, sensitivities of men. And, and the whole Old Testament sacrificial system was really a constant reminder of the sinfulness of sin, a perpetual object lesson uh, of the supreme Uh, the supremely high cost of sin, the wages of sin is death. Uh, Ezekiel 18.4, the soul who sins will die. And I told you what would happen is the worshiper would bring an unblemished animal to the tabernacle, to the priest, and then that worshiper would place his hand uh, on the top of the head of the animal who would act as the worshiper's substitute. The worshiper would confess his sins, and then by placing his hands on the uh, animal, uh, again, as his substitute, the worshiper would symbolically transfer his sin to that sinless animal, and then the worshiper would slaughter the animal. The blood would be gathered would be collected in a basin by the priest and then splattered upon the altar, again as a visual reminder of the exceeding sinfulness of sin and the unalterable, incomprehensible holiness of God. The fact, again, that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So the nonstop flow of butchery and blood There in the tabernacle that was located right in the center of the camp, again, as a visual aid to remind everyone of the exceeding sinfulness of sin and the devastating effects of sin, which again is death. And again, a reminder that man, no no sinful man can ever come to the presence of a holy God unless his sin had been covered, unless his sin had been atoned for, uh, propitiated. No, no, No sinful man could ever enter into the presence of the holy God unless his sin had been forgiven. Leviticus 17:11 says for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So obviously blood outside the flesh of an animal is equivalent to, to death and obviously blood in the creature is what makes life possible chapter uh, verse 14 of chapter Leviticus Uh, Leviticus 17 verse 14 says as for the life of all flesh its blood is identified in its life so the taking of blood the shedding of blood is just a picture uh, of life being poured out so that's what we looked at the first time Uh, the only way that a holy God can be approached is by the shedding of blood the the cost to grant forgiveness is high Uh, sin is not easily forgivable Uh, again the wages of sin is death The, the penalty is inflexibly harsh Because sin is such an abomination in the eyes of a perfectly righteous and holy God. Now last time we turned our attention to the issue of the holiness of God. Leviticus 19 verse 2 says, Speak to the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. God is holy. There's absolutely no one like Him. He's infinitely elevated above all people and utterly separated from us. Perfectly spotless without the shadow of sin. And he demands us as the people to be holy also, to live in a manner that is consistent with his character and his nature. But because of the nature of man and the inescapable reality of the holiness of God, sacrifices in the temple were endless because God's holiness is eternally fixed and man is always sinful. So we looked at the great error when it comes to the issue of the holiness of God that I think a lot of modern evangelicalism falls into uh, the great error of, mo- of a modern man failing to treat God as he is uh, again absolutely uh, eternally dangerously holy uh, it is is a dangerous thing to come into his presence it's a dangerous thing to treat God with casualness and to kind of point that out just a little bit we looked at the issue of Nadab and Abihu the two oldest sons of Aaron uh, Leviticus ten one says, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, uh, took their respective fire pans and put in them, uh, putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all people, I will be honored. And Aaron therefore kept silent. Again, God says, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all who come near, uh, I, I, by all people, I will be honored. And, and again, these two men, Nadab and Abihu, uh, uh, dared to treat God as unholy. And then God instantly takes their life. God dealt with their, their sin immediately and harshly. And, and again, consumed them by fire. And I told you there was another uh, similar kind of situation in First Chronicles 13. Uh, another Old Testament story had to do with the Ark of the Covenant. Had to do with a man named Uzzah. And that man disobeyed God. He dared to touch the ark uh, that that God considered as holy. And God immediately struck him down and and took his life. Because no mere man, listen, no mere man can treat God casually. No mere man can come to, to, to God in a way that a man thinks is best. That's one of the great tragedies of modern evangelicalism. We've turned the whole thing upside down. And we think we get to determine or it's all about us. It's not all about us. We're the cause of all the sacrifice. It's our sin that has caused that. It's all about God and his glory. It's all about Jesus Christ and his, his mercy and his glory and his redemption through his shed blood. We don't get to determine how we approach God. He's not a user-friendly deity, as so much of modern evangelicalism tries to pass him off to be. Uzzah was contaminated with sin. And God didn't want his holy throne to be touched. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant, because it was Uzzah that contaminated the the Ark of the Covenant, because Uzzah was contaminated by evil. Uh, Again, it's expressly important. God says, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And by all people, I will be honored. That's just not for for those who say, well, yeah, okay, if you believe in that. No, that's a statement of fact. Every bit as much as gravity is a statement of reality in a world uh, that we live in. Now, I will be treated as holy, and before all people, I will be honored. Now we saw the same kind of uh, story in the New Testament with Ananias and Sapphira, the husband and wife who dared to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test. Uh, They lied uh, to God, but they also lied to the apostles uh, about the amount of money that they'd sold a piece of property for. And and, uh, uh, God immediately struck them uh, both dead because God is holy. The reality of His holiness, the reality of His holy being, I told you last time, is mankind's greatest problem. The Holy God. There's no one like Him. He's utterly separate, set apart, distinct, and infinitely so from His creation. He is one who is absolutely unapproachable. He indeed is awful in majesty. And there's no one that ever can go into His presence with His sin uncovered and live. And we saw that this Holy God, this absolutely perfectly pure, holy God uh, uh, has an unalterable hatred for sin. And because he has an unalterable hatred for sin, fear, fear, not casualness, fear would be the appropriate response in his presence by sinful men. By sinful men. Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And as I said last time, if you've never personally experienced at any level a sense of fear before a holy God, then at least uh, you're not very wise. You're not very wise. Again, man's greatest problem is God. Man's greatest problem is there's no fear of God before their eyes, as Paul says in Romans 3, verse 18. God is righteous and is holy. And His justice demands that sin will be punished. And make no mistake, sin will be punished. Somebody asked me last week, well, why is God not punishing sin at the moment in great cataclysmic outbursts of His, his wrath? Uh, the fact is, sin will be punished. And again, for all who treat Him in an unholy manner, they will face His terrifying wrath. Again, the Scripture says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, especially for those, as Paul says in Romans 2, verse 5, who are stubborn and unrepentant of heart, who are storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That's what's happening. God, in His mercy, is extending grace to men so they might repent before there's an outpouring of his wrath, because God will be treated as holy, and sin will be punished. Now let's begin to read this chapter, or start to get ready to read this chapter, Leviticus 16. And before we get through the text, I want to make a few introductory uh, comments. The chapter's a little bit long, it's a little bit meticulous, and, and I think by design, I think it's part of the picture for us to understand that atoning for sin is complex. It's a costly a costly issue. A major theme in the chapter is going to be atonement. So when we come to chapter 16, the theme specifically is the day of atonement. It's an annual event in the nation of Israel. It came in the fall of the year, September, October, that time frame, about six months after the celebration of the Passover. Uh, again, according to the uh, Israelite, the Jewish calendar, it came on the 10th day of the seventh month. Now this festival, the day of atonement, was unlike other Jewish uh, holidays Uh, others were festive events this was not a festive event the day of atonement the nation of Israel was really a national day of mourning a national day of repentance the sabbath day celebration that no work could be done and anyone who did not observe the sabbath day celebration was to be cut off from the people and some would suggest that perhaps is a euphemism for being put to death it was a day the day of atonement was a day when men humbled themselves Again, a day of mourning, repentance, fasting. Leviticus 16 builds on the preceding chapters. Uh, uh, Again, chapter 10, the issue with Nadab and Abihu. And then chapters 11 through 15 basically disclose the fact of man and his uncleanness. And and man is uh, liable to contact even more uncleanness uh, through a variety of things around him. Through food, through death, through sexual relationship, through disease. Therefore, the bottom line issue is that men are unfit. They're unfit to enter the presence of a holy God. And they're always in need of cleansing. Now, the lessons of the Day of Atonement are many and varied, uh, one old commentator, Old Testament commentator Wenham, uh, says this. He says the main purpose of the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement ceremony, is to cleanse the sanctuary from the pollution introduced into it by unclean worshippers, so to make possible God's continual uh, presence among His people. Because even with all the wide-ranging rules and dealings with uncleanness, uh, inevitably uh, someone is going uh, to infringe on one of them and unwittingly uh, thereby pollute the sanctuary and make it unfit for the presence of God. And in fact, you see that, uh, that, that same theme in verses 16, 18, and 20. The need to cleanse the temple. Which I think probably seems kind of odd to us, to modern ears, uh, because we don't understand how sin defiles everything. And we don't understand that our sin not only defiles us, but our sin defiles our environment, everything we touch others have suggested that uh, first and foremost on the day of atonement what was needed uh, again was all these with all these sacrifices uh, uh, that composed the Levitical system uh, that were always faithfully carried out throughout the year uh, ultimately the issue is that they didn't avail for a final removal of sin uh, all, all these things did were just a temporary covering of guilt uh, they could never finally and fully remove Uh, Therefore, ultimately, what the sinner needed was a perfect high priest, one who could enter the Holy of Holies, and one who, uh, a high priest, uh, again, uh, that Israel, the high priest of Israel did, but only one time of year, uh, with a perfect sacrifice. So again, this is a picture of something else that's coming, something that's needed. Uh, uh, The sinfulness of man was so complete, so uh, overwhelming him, that a true worshiper uh, could never be, Uh, uh, could not reach uh, true worship until he's free uh, of uh, his sin and he can never be free by Aaron because he's not the perfect priest. Uh, All all he could do is cover over sin. So again, Aaron himself was a sinner. He needed to offer sacrifice uh, for himself before he could come and offer for the nation. So again, the Day of Atonement is pointing towards man's desperate need for something more full, something future to come. Man's desperate need for a one-time perfect sacrifice, a, a perfect high priest who could truly atone for sin. And, and, of course, that's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think it's safe to say that almost every element in uh, Leviticus chapter 16, every element on the Day of Atonement, really finds its final fulfillment, its ultimate, ul- ultimate fulfillment, in, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it's a chapter, Leviticus 16, is a chapter full of symbols and figures and types, again, that all foreshadow Christ. Uh, illustrations that relate to some aspect of the personal work of Christ the atoning the atoning work of the savior and again it's important to realize that that due to the solemnity of this event uh, the, the fact that the high priest is uh, performing uh, uh, this ceremony one time a year uh, he needed to get ready he, he just didn't do it casually or flippantly he needed to prepare the mishnah which is the first uh, major written collection of jewish oral tradition sometimes it's known as the oral Torah Uh, the Mishnah states that uh, seven days before the day of atonement the high priest took up residence in the abode uh, there in the chamber of the of the temple and he likely spent those days preceding uh, the day of atonement preparing himself getting ready for this day praying and studying before he would himself enter into the holy of holies now, as we read the text together, uh, I'm going to try to break it up by giving you a little bit of headlines along the way, and then just some comments uh, uh, to, to work our way through as we just basically overview the chapter. There are five major parts in this text in chapter 16, which again is the longest description of the Day of Atonement found in the Bible. So here's part one, and it really is just the introduction. It's in the first two verses. Leviticus 16:1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of his two sons, after the two, uh, death of the uh, two sons of Aaron, when they approached the presence of the Lord and died. So it's interesting, the whole chapter begins back, right, uh, to the, the sons of uh, of uh, uh, Aaron, uh, Nadab and Abihu. Uh, again, God's holiness is not only a fact. Listen, God's holiness is a threat to sinful mankind. God's holiness is a threat to sinful mankind. So again, it has to be taken It has to be realized, and God has to be approached cautiously. There has to be some serious attention uh, to to managing uh, our relationship with the holy God. So it starts off with reminding everybody of uh, these two sons. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, you shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest you die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So again, Aaron, the high priest, knew that he needed to enter into God's presence with great care, uh, especially, again, with the, uh, in, in the forefront of his mind, uh, uh, the death of his sons uh, would have to have been there. And again, the threat is to approach God with care, again, lest you die. It's stated in verse 2 it's stated again in verse 13. Uh, again, a reminder uh, that Aaron knew he needed to take God seriously. Now, with the tabernacle, you understand it's the tent of meeting. There's an outside wall, if you will, and within the tabernacle is the holy place. And then within the holy place, behind the veil, you have another room, and behind that is the, the Holy of Holies, so the very inner sanctuary of God. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. That Ark of the Covenant, again, represents the presence of God, the very throne of God. And again, God can't be approached haphazardly in any kind of fashion, uh, in any way that suits him at, at the moment it's only god and his word that tells us how men can approach him the lord said to moses tell your brother aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside of the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark lest he die again just another reminder of how dangerous it is to go in the presence of a holy god and that familiarity really breeds content which will lead to your destruction God is just, God is holy, and God demands to be treated as such. And again, everybody in the nation knew that. They knew it was a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Again, Aaron's two sons had just been killed. They had treated God um, uh, improperly. They treated God as unholy. And God killed them. It was, a, it was a terrifying thing to go into the presence of God. Jewish tradition, there's uh, a mystical commentary called the Book of, of Zohar uh, that says uh, golden ropes were tied to the leg of the priest uh, when he entered into the Holy of Holies, uh, lest he to enter into the Holy of Holies in a, an unworthy fashion, and he died. So if you've got the, the high priest who's entered into the Holy of Holies in an unworthy fashion and he dies, you've got to get him out of there, but nobody's going into God's presence. So again, it doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible, but that's just a a mystical commentary, again, called the Book of Zohar. But you get the picture. It's a fearful thing to go in the presence of a holy God, so they drag him out if they had to. Because no one's going in there. Now the second part here is the animals and the clothing that were used in the ritual. Verse 3, Aaron shall enter the holy place with this uh, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering he shall put on the holy linen tunic and the linen undergarments shall be next to his body and he shall be girded with a linen sash and attired with linen a linen turban these are holy garments then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on so Aaron on this day was not to wear the high priestly garments the that he would normally wear, but he'd wear something similar, something less flamboyant than, uh, than what he'd normally wear, just linen garments. The, the normal uh, wardrobe of the high priest is de- described over in Exodus 28. They're beautiful colored materials, intricate embroidery, golden jewelry sold in, uh, sewn in uh, to make the, the uh, high priest look like a king, right? a breastplate, etc., But on the Day of Atonement, he just wears linen garments. On the Day of Atonement, he looks more like a slave. His garments are very uh, simple, and he has to dress for the occasion. Now, again, other days when he's amongst other men, uh, his dignity is great as a mediator between God and man, so he dresses in this splendid clothing to draw attention to the glory of his office. But this day, when he enters into the, the presence of God, his dress is much, again, like that of a slave. Because even the high priest himself... Uh, has uh, stripped of all honor when he comes in the presence of a holy God. It really is somewhat of a picture uh, of uh, uh, Aaron who ultimately uh, represents or prefigures Christ. Uh, Aaron humbling himself is really a a picture of Christ laying aside his glory as he humbled himself. Christ, the true high priest, who who comes to this earth and, and humbles himself and becomes a man taking on our flesh. And then Aaron was to bathe, not just his hands and feet, but his entire body. Uh, Again, another picture of the absolute need of purity, of the need of cleansing. And again, ultimately a reminder that uh, Aaron's not the Savior. He's not the high priest we need. Because he's a man who also needs to be cleansed himself. He's a man who's going to have to offer sacrifice for himself. Verse 5 says, And he shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats, one for a sin offering and one for a burnt offering. The third part is really a summary of the sacrifices and the ceremonies that are going to be used here in the Day of Atonement. Verse 6, Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. Verse 7, He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Verse 8, And Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot, for, uh, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Now, if you have the ESV, it says Azael, and I'll talk about that here in a few moments. But the casting of lots is really just a way to picture God's providence on which goat is going to be offered and which goat is going to be set free into the wilderness. Verse 9, then Aaron shall offer the goat uh, which the lot f- uh, uh, for the Lord fell, uh, fell and, and make uh, it a sin offering, verse 10, but the goat in which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. Now the next part is uh, really from, run, runs from verse 11 through uh, verse 28, it's kind of a detailed description of the ceremonies and, and the requirements Uh, that are described there in verse uh, 6 through 10, Uh, so kind of a a, a, a more more intricate look. And there's really, in this fourth part, there's three subsections. I don't know if that's confusing, but there's three kind of subsections here. Subsection number one is just the description of the blood-sprinkling atonement ritual, verse 11. Then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself, and for his household, and he shall slaughter the bull and the sin offering, which is for himself. So again, signifying that Aaron, the high priest, and himself, his family, uh, his family, perhaps uh, the priests, it depends on who you read, uh, they have to make sacrifice. He needs to make sacrifice before he can carry out the function of, of the high priest, because he too, Aaron, is a sinner. Uh, he's in need of forgiveness. Verse 12, he shall take a firepan full of coals of fire upon the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense and bring them inside the veil. So again, inside the Holy of Holies, there's a curtain of veil that separates the, the holy place again from the most inner chamber, the, the holy, uh, holy of Holies. And, and the veil is folded back and Aaron stands before the Ark of the Covenant, before the, the throne of God. Uh, but he's waiting just for a moment as he takes the, the incense uh, that is in his hand, that he has uh, taken coals from the uh, altar of uh, sacrifice and uh, throws the incense on that pan of charcoal uh, to fill the, the place uh, with smoke. Now you'd have to think at this moment, uh, as the veil's coming back and he's throwing the incense, you'd have to ima- imagine that Aaron's heart is pounding deep in his chest, right? Faster and faster, he's about to enter into the presence of the Holy God, wondering again if uh, God would accept him. Verse 13, you shall put the incense of the fire before the Lord, and the cloud of incense, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat, or the propitiatory, that is on the ark of the testimony, lest he die. So so the mercy seat is built from a a Hebrew verb that means to atone. It's sometimes uh, 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 rendered atonement cover. It's the lid, basically, of the ark uh, of the covenant, the place where atonement was made. And again, the ark is considered most holy. It's considered the throne of God. It's the embodiment of the presence of God among His people, as was the tabernacle, as was the cloud of fire and the or the pillar of fire and the cloud of and uh, the cloud that indicates the uh, the presence of God. So again, on the ark is a lid, and on this lid are two cherubim, two angelic. Beings that are facing each other, guarding the holiness of God, as it were. And in the middle there, that's the propitiatory. That's the mercy seat. That's the place where the blood was poured out. The place where God meets his people and atonement takes place. So so again, to enter into the Holy of Holies was a, a, a frightful event. A, a danger, or a, 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 an event fraught with danger. And so to protect himself from the wrath of God, the high priest would take this again as a censor full of hot charcoal from the altar, the, the burnt offering, and put this fine incense into it, and it, the whole thing would, would turn into smoke. And the smoke of the incense was to cover the mercy seat, so the high priest would not be killed. And the purpose of the incense of the smoke is to create a screen which would prevent the, uh, the, the high priest from gazing upon the holy presence of God, as one commentator suggests. Uh, others have suggested that the incense is to prevent God from seeing the sinner. The text again says that the incense of the smoke covers the mercy seat uh, rather than the high priest. So basically what you have is you have the whole inner sanctuary here, the, the Holy of Holies filling up with smoke, smoke of the incense, filling the room, dimming the presence, the glory of the presence of God, sparing the life of the high priest. So basically the entire Holy of Holies is smoking. It's hard to see in there. Matthew Henry in his commentary says, The Jews said that uh, the the high priest was to go in sideways, that he might not look directly upon the ark where the divine glory was till it was covered with smoke. And then he must come out backward out of reverence uh, to the divine majesty. Then after a short prayer, he was to hasten out of the sanctuary to show himself to the people so that they might not suspect that he had misbehaved himself and died before the Lord. It's a dangerous thing to approach a holy God. It's interesting, when I read that commentary from Matthew Henry about backing out, if you've been to Russia, perhaps been to an Orthodox, a Russian Orthodox temple, uh, there's a literal fence that keeps people back from the doors, and the, dark, the doors take you into the holy places or the, the, the sanctuary, the, the holy of holies, as it were, they're in the temple. And obviously you can never go past the fence, and most certainly you can't go behind the doors where the, where the priest is. And this is the thing, you never turn your back. When you walk in and see it, you never turn your back and walk out. Again, in the words of Henry, you must, back, you must come out backwards in reverence to the divine majesty. So again, if you go into one of these places and, and you start to turn around and back out, there's a little old lady that's got a little stick somewhere in that room who's watching you, and she will make sure that you understand Russian, okay, and not back out. You know, not turn your back on the Holy of Holies. They take it to that that level. Verse 14, Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat. On the east side, in the front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. So again, the shed blood of the bull is offered on behalf of the priest. Verse 15, Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood... As he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat in front of the uh, in front of the mercy seat, so again the shed blood of the goat is offered on behalf of the people, verse sixteen, and he shall make atonement for the holy place uh, because of the impurities of the sons of Israel because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins, and thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides with them in the midst of their impurities so again man's sinful sinfulness, his very presence. In their tabernacle, defiles the place. It needs to be cleansed. Verse 17. When he goes in and makes atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. Verse 18. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar and on all sides. Verse 19: With his finger, he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times, and cleanse it from the impurities of the sons of Israel. Uh, and cleanse it from uh, uh, the impurities of the sons of Israel to consecrate it. next subsection is just a, uh, the issue describing the issue of the, of the law of the scapegoats. Verse 20: When he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting at the altar, he shall offer the live goat. Now again, remember back up in verse uh, yeah, 7, verse 8, there are two goats that are cho- chosen. Uh, lots are cast for them. One's a sacrifice and one is going to be the scapegoat. Verse 21, then Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. That's a, again, a, laying on the hands is a picture of imputation. It's a symbolic transfer of sin to, to another. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. Verse 22, the goat shall bear it on itself all their iniquities uh, to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. So uh, again, whatever happens to the goat that's let go, nobody knows. It goes into the wilderness, and it's simply uh, sent away. And I'll say more about that here in a moment. The third subsection here is really a description of the cleansing rituals uh, that are followed by the priests uh, and, and uh, the one who leads the uh, the goat into the wilderness. Verse twenty-three: Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting, take off the linen garments uh, which he has put on, and when he went into the holy place, and he shall leave them there. Uh, he shall bathe his body in water in, the holy, in a holy place, and put on the, uh, his clothes, and come forth, and offer burnt offering and the burnt, uh, burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people, and make atonement for himself and for the people. Then he shall offer up the smoke of the fat and the sin offering on the altar. And the one who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and then afterward he shall come into the camp. So again, it's just another picture of the sinfulness of sin. Even the man whose job only is to take the goat out in the wilderness and let it go, just his proximity to sin makes him unclean, and he's in need of a bath. Verse 27, the bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering whose blood was bought to make atonement. And the holy place shall be taken outside the camp, and they shall burn their hides, their flesh, their refuse in the fire. Then the one who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water. Then afterward he shall come into the camp. So all these men have to go through all these ceremonial cleansings, these uh, changing of their clothes, their washing. Again, just in the proximity of sin makes them unclean. And then the the, the fifth part here is just a description of the a perpetual sacrifice, a perpetual uh, uh, statute. Verse 29, This shall be a permanent statute for you in the seventh month of the tenth day of the month. You shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether native or alien or sojourns among you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you, and you shall be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Verse 31, it is to be a Sabbath, a solemn rest for you, uh, that you may humble your souls. It's a permanent statue. Verse 32, so the priest uh, who is anointed and ordained to serve the priest in his father's place shall make atonement. He shall thus put on linen garments and holy garments, make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. Uh, He shall also make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. Verse 34 says, now you shall have this permanent statue to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once every year, and just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so he did. So again, this is something that's done annually, it's done once a year. Uh, again, just a reminder that all the daily sacrifices that were going on in the nation of Israel are not truly efficacious, that there's a need in the nation, and the need for the people to have a greater cleansing. Uh, Again, uh, a need for atonement, for for sins that have been committed unaware, sins that were never really actually confessed and atoned for. Uh, The fact is that the nation uh, uh, of Israel commits far, far uh, many more sins that were actually ever atoned for in in the daily sacrifices. Now again, this is the longest uh, description of the Day of Atonement uh, in in the Bible. Uh, and, And although if you were careful in listening and reading that specific phraseology, the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, uh, is not specifically mentioned in that text. Over in Leviticus 23, which is again a description of the Day of Atonement, uh, you have a picture of the responsibility of the people uh, on that day, and there in that section, uh, you don't necessarily have to turn there, you can if you want, it's Leviticus 23, 26, there you have the phraseology, Day of Atonement actually use. Leviticus 23, 26. The Lord spoke to Moses saying on exactly uh, the 10th day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. And you shall humble your souls and present any offerings by fire to the Lord. Neither shall you do any work in the same day, for it is the day of atonement to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord your God. Now again, that word atonement, day of atonement, uh, the, the Lord uses the, the word atonement to uh, in chapter 16, 15 times uh, as God gave Aaron rituals to make atonement for himself, for his family, for the holy place, for the altar, for the tent of meeting as a whole, and then for all the people of the nation. Now, what is atonement? What, what does it mean, and then why is it so important? Well, kafar is the is the Hebrew word atonement, and it's interesting that the uh, English, or the, the is, kafar is actually the word in the Hebrew. And in the e in the English, uh, we have put the word atonement there, and it's said that in the 16th century, Thomas More kind of coined that term. Uh, it, 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 the, the English word atonement uh, is a combination of at plus a Middle English word called onement. At-onement. And, and basically the at-onement it refers to reconciliation or the preparation that is made to accomplish reconciliation. So atonement, or the Hebrew word kafar, again, is, is that which brings reconciliation or peace with God. So the word atonement, it's not so much a transliteration or even a translation of the word. It's just a substitute. It's a word that we use in the English to try to make a point. But the basic meaning of the Hebrew word is to cover. To cover, to pacify, to wipe away, to purge, to appease. And the the word is used... Uh, again, to promote such biblical ideas in terms such as propitiation, reconciliation, redemption. That's how, those are the words uh, that that explain the different ways in which peace with God uh, comes to pass. And, And I think here, primarily, propitiation is really the word that stands out. It's a tremendous word. It's a word, propitiation, that speaks of the removal of God's personal wrath towards us as sinners, and again, God's wrath is not like some kind of uh, unbridled human uh, temper tantrum. Uh, God's wrath is really an expression of his holiness, his holy justice. The fact that the Bible says uh, that God is angry with the sinner each and every day. And for God's wrath to be uh, satisfied, to be appeased, for justice to be satisfied, for God's holy anger to be turned away, a sacrifice has to be made because the wages of sin is death. There's a penalty that has to be paid. The blood that's going to be offered on the propitiatory, again, the mercy seat, that's where God's wrath is turned away. Now, why is atonement important? Well, because men never stop sinning. And again, atonement for sin is needed in order for us to be in God's presence. And and atonement uh, is accomplished by doing what God says is necessary to have reconciliation with Him, not what men think. Again, here's where all the religions of the world fall short and just one of a number of different ways, but all men think that they can approach God any way they want to. And the answer is you can't. The reality is God's holy. He'll be treated as holy, and it's a very dangerous thing to come into his presence. And if you want to have reconciliation, if you want to have propitiation, if you want to have your sin covered over, you better approach him only in the manner or the fashion that he has said is uh, is possible to approach him, acceptable to approach him. So again here in the context the sin is atoned for through the sacrifice, the the shed blood as God has prescribed. And again, sacrificial atonement for sin is necessary because of God's holiness, because again of God's justice. God is the holy righteous judge, can't let sin go unpunished. He can't let the guilty person go free again without being punished. So atonement for sin through a sacrifice is God's answer to the tension between his justice, his holiness, and his desire to be merciful uh, to sinners like us. So God expresses his justice uh, against sin in the death of a substitute, a sacrifice. Again, it's in his mercy that he allows the sinner to have someone stand in his place. A substitute to be sacrificed rather than the sinner. Now, to understand the word uh, uh, atonement even deeper, better, uh, the theological term that we need to hold on to would be penal substitutionary atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement. That's how God's wrath is turned away. That's how God's wrath is propitiated. By the ransom price paid by, by another. Uh, again, the substitute dies in the place of the Sinner. The death of the substitute is represented by his shed blood, and that's what accomplishes the atonement. So penal substitutionary atonement is a foundational Christian doctrine and understanding of salvation. By penal, we just mean uh, judicial. Uh, God is a holy, righteous judge of the universe, condemns to punishment our sin. We are guilty before uh, the holy God. And then again, substitutionary just means Our punishment is borne by another in our place. That's how God reconciles himself to sinners. That's how God's holy wrath is turned away from us because our punishment that we deserve is taken on our behalf by another. So now let's just stop and make a few observations of the chapter. First off, Obviously, the entire sacrificial system is a picture of Christ. The innocent bearing the guilt of the guilty. Second Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Boy, that's one you should commit to memory. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, the critics, obviously, of penal substitutionary atonement or uh, this uh, doctrine claim it's unjust for the innocent party to suffer punishment while the guilty party goes free and our, in our our court system i guess we would we would um, um, declare that unjust we would we would criticize that but what the critic of penal substitutionary atonement and understanding of biblical reconciliation propitiation what, what the critic doesn't understand is that between the believer and Christ, there's a real, vital, life-giving union. Right? There's a real, vital, life-giving union with Jesus Christ and he with us. Don't, don't, don't just read over the top of the Bible. Read what it says. Second Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, right? If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away, behold, new things have come. Uh, Ephesians 2, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, who were formerly, who, who uh, were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Romans 8, 1, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's a real union, a vital connection, life between man and the person of Jesus Christ. A real vital union, he with us. And we with him. We in him. In fact, he came for us. Angel, the angel to Joseph. Matthew chapter 1 verse 20. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Verse 21. She shall bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. For it is he who will save his people from their sins. His people. He suffered and died for us. Jesus Christ, holy, innocent. But the one who was willing to come and willingly came to bear our guilt, to take our punishment, to stand in our place as our representative. The one who identifies with us and the one who makes himself responsible for us and the one who has the authority to do so. Even in our own court system, on our own Uh, legal system. It appreciates the principle that someone may choose to make himself responsible for someone else's debt. And that's what Jesus Christ has done. He's made himself responsible for our debt. That's what Isaiah chapter 53 is all about. Isaiah 53 verse 4 Surely our grief he himself bore, our sorrow he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him uh stricken, smitten of God, afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquity. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. First Peter chapter two, verse twenty four. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that so we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we were healed. First Peter three eighteen, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. And again, he did so out of love. It was the love of the Father that sent him, and it was the love of the person, the Son, the love of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that caused him to come, to die in our place, to take our punishment willingly. He says, John, the Lord Jesus Christ, John fifteen thirteen. greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends, and you are my friends if you do what I command you. Because we can't save ourselves. Romans 3 verse 10 there's none righteous, not even one. Romans 3 verse 23 all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need a substitute. And Jesus Christ is the one who provides that penal substitutionary atonement. Again, the entire Old Testament sacrificial system is a picture of Christ, pointing to Christ. Second observation the Day of Atonement really foreshadows this event. The Day of Atonement really foreshadows and anticipates really a greater permanent cleansing of God's people in the dwelling places of God. Again, a permanent cleansing. And this permanent cleansing is going to be accomplished by not Aaron because he's got to atone for his own sin. It's going to be accomplished by a better priest. And this better priest is going to come. He's going to offer a better offering, a better sacrifice. Now, what's interesting on the Day of Atonement here in Leviticus 16 is the high priest does all the work. If you go back and look through that chapter, you see all the instructions that are given in that chapter are for Aaron. And they're all for him to carry out. With the exception of the person in verse 21 that takes the scapegoat out in the wilderness and some other guys who take the offerings out outside the camp to burn them. But all the work on the Day of Atonement is done by the high priest. Even the morning and the evening sacrifices and all the sacrifices there that are required for the Day of Atonement. Now, if you remember previously, I told you that the way it normally worked, the normal process of daily sacrifices is that the worshiper did all the work. Right? Remember that? I told you basically what the the priest does. He just kind of stokes the fire to burn all the animals. But it was the worshiper who brought the animal, the worshiper who slaughtered the animal. The worshiper that did all the washing and the cutting and the pieces, again, all, all that the, the, the priest did is he he applied the blood. But here on the Day of Atonement, it's the high priest that does all the work. And again, on normal days, the high priest just kind of oversaw all the activities. But on the Day of Atonement, he's doing everything. He's burning the daily incense. He's dressing the lamps. He's making the sacrifices, the normal sacrifices, and then these extra sacrifices that are going on on this appointed day. And let me tell you, there are a lot of sacrifices going on on the Day of Atonement. A lot of sacrifices that are being offered by one man. I count 15. 15. Verse 3 of chapter 6 a bull and a ram. That's Aaron's personal sin offering. That's two animals. Over in Numbers 29, verse 8, it says, that the people would bring for their corporate offerings a bull, a ram, seven male lambs one year old. That's nine animals. So two plus nine, 11. Uh, nine, eleven. We're up to eleven. Numbers twenty nine eleven adds a male goat, which is twelve, for the sin offering. Then you got the two other goats, right? One's going to be the offering. Uh, uh, one's going to be sitting out in the wilderness, won't count him. The other one's going to be sacrificed. So that's thirteen. And then on the day of, uh, or the law of Moses says that two lambs are always offered every single day, uh, morning and evening. Uh, Exodus 29, 38, 39, two one-year-old lambs every day. So again, on the day of atonement, these two animals still had to be sacrificed, morning and evening sacrificed. So that's 15 animals slaughtered, prepared, offered by the high priest on the day of atonement. And he does it all by himself. Now, I don't know, just stop and think about it. Maybe some of you know by practice, but by actual doing this, but slaughtering and butchering and burning just one bull, that would be a lot for one man. And all the slaughtering, all the ceremonial washing, all the cleansing, all the changing of garments, all the splattering of blood. Again, all done in a manner of understanding the fear and the terror of entering into the Holy of Holies in an unworthy manner, lest he die. And again, only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies only on one day of a year. That would be the day of atonement. Again, following all the strict ceremonial instructions. So you'd have to think that the physical exertion of the high priest would have to have been great. Along with the mental, the emotional, the spiritual toll. uh, Again, he's under great pressure lest he die So you'd have to assume that on the Day of Atonement, Aaron must have been physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted. Along with, again, carrying this real holy fear as the high priest. Therefore, the high priest on the Day of Atonement never did what? He never sat down. He never sat down. His work was never finished. And the reason that the high priest does all the work here, that Aaron does all the high work here on the Day of Atonement, is because Aaron is serving as a type of Christ. Meaning that Aaron's work in the temple on the Day of Atonement is a reminder of the work of atonement, the work for our redemption is all done by the person of Jesus Christ. We don't do any work on our own. We have no merit. We have no merit on our own. It's all the atoning work of the person of Jesus Christ. He does it all. So again, the the high priest literally doesn't sit down all day long. Everything he's doing is serving as a type of Christ. A living foreshadow, a living foreshadowing of Christ who when he comes, he will be a different high priest. So again, here in the context, Aaron the high priest is making atonement for his own sin. But the Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes, he's sinless. He doesn't need to make offering for himself because he's a better high priest. Turn quickly, and I, and I can't wait for you to, to follow, but turn over to the book of Hebrews. Just a few passages. I thought it'd be best instead of me just read, you should look. I go, go to Hebrews 7. And again, Jesus is this better high priest. At Hebrews 7, verse 26. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy innocent undefiled separated from sinners exalted above the heavens who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sin and then for the sins of other people because uh, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself Jesus is the picture Aaron's just a foreshadowing of this one that we all need this one who comes as a different high priest this one who's better a better high priest because he's going to offer a better sacrifice. Turn over to chapter 9 verse 11 When Christ appeared, Hebrews 9 verse 11 When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come he entered through a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is to say not of this creation verse 12 not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered into the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify a cleansing of the flesh, how much more, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who entered through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve a living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So the person of Jesus Christ is a better priest. The person of Jesus Christ offers a better sacrifice. And the person of Jesus Christ is going to be the mediator of a better covenant, the new covenant. Look over at chapter 10, verse 4. Hebrews 10, verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Drop down to verse 10. By this we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 11. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time sat down at the right hand of God. Waiting from that time onward till his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all times those who are sanctified. Verse 19, since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The blood of bulls and goats could never truly take away sin. But the symbolism of the Day of Atonement is important. The best that could happen on the Day of Atonement is that sin would be covered uh, and purity uh, for uh, sin would be covered over uh, for another year. However, the Day of Atonement is a picture that points again to the fact that all of the daily sacrifices in and of themselves were not efficacious. All the sins committed by people again the so many sins committed by people, by neglect or carelessness or ignorance, sins that were forgotten, sins that were overlooked, sins that were never atoned for. Uh, again, the Day of Atonement is a symbolic reminder that sin requires atonement. And it's a symbolic require, or a reminder of the fact that we sin far more than we are ever seeking forgiveness for before God. All the blood of the bulls, all the blood of the animals, all the slaughter. Scapegoat carrying sin off into the wilderness. All of that was still not good enough to deal with the issue of sin, the problem of sin. Because of the Day of Atonement, the priest is doing 15 sacrifices. Guess what happens when everybody goes to bed and gets up the next morning? Same sacrifices. The priest gets up in the morning, offers a lamb. Every morning, every evening. The people would come. They would continue to sin. They'd come bring their sin offerings, their trespass offerings, their burnt offerings. It never ended. There was no end in this complex system. But I do think that the Old Testament Jews, who were truly believers, I do think they understood to some level the holiness of God, the sinfulness of sin. I do think they understood that the the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. I think they understood that death and the sacrificial system was, again, divinely appointed means by which Israel could trust the Lord, that he would bring provision and salvation. I think they understood the only way for their sins to be truly atoned for, for God's wrath to be truly appeased, was through the sacrificial death of the one whom God promised to send, the absolutely perfectly pure sinless one the Messiah because messianic expectations were always high amongst true believers amongst true believers they were always looking for the one who could truly and finally once for all take care of the issue of sin again as as foretold in Isaiah 53 and other passages of scripture for those who really understood the holiness of God the sinfulness of their own sin the nation was always looking for whom the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They were always looking for him. So the Day of Atonement begins again a picture of the work of Christ that's explained in the rest of the Word of God because it's Christ's death that does what the death of the blood shed by bulls and goats could never do. That is take away sin forever. He's a better priest. He offers a better sacrifice. He brings better uh, covenant. Hebrews ten twelve Christ having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. It's also interesting, if you stop and think about it, it's Christ, Christ's sacrifice actually all, also brings us better access into the presence of God. Again, Aaron could only draw near to God one time a year in the Holy of Holies, right? And he did so in utter terror and fear. But stop and think about it. When Christ was crucified and his blood was shed for the people, remember in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, it says, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. The, the veil that formerly kept man separate from God and, and separate there from the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom, signifying what? access for every true believer in Christ. Every true believer in Christ now has been granted full unlimited access to God through the person of Jesus Christ. That's why the writer of the book of Hebrews says, Hebrews 4, verse 16, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Tremendous truth. Last point. The scapegoats, the purpose of the scapegoats. You don't have to turn back there, but just again, very quick here. Remember back in Leviticus 16, uh, verse 7, you're going to have two goats. One's going to be taken and slaughtered. The other one's going to be sent away. And and again, most of the translations, I think modern translations say scapegoat. Uh, Again, ESV says Azazel. And there's a lot of stuff written by commentators over that word, over what exactly it means, and without going into a lot of detail over what I don't think it means. That men write volumes on. uh, I think you have to realize that this two-goat ritual is unique. There's nothing else found anywhere in the in the Bible, in the Mosaic Law, and there's nothing like this found in any of the pagan uh, amongst the pagan nations. But I think it's best for us to understand this issue of the scapegoat is that, again, the goat that's slaughtered, his blood sprinkled on the mercy seat. Again, it's a picture of deliverance through the shed blood of a, a substitute. The atonement is being made by the shedding of the blood and forgiveness of sin, again, through the substitute, the shed blood of this animal. So the first goat represents the means of forgiveness. That is, again, his propitiatory death, his shedding of blood. But the second goat, the, the scapegoat, the one that lives and the one that's taken out in the wilderness and set free, he really represents the effects of the sacrifice for sin. That is that sin is being removed by way of forgiveness. I think the scapegoat is an illustrative device to make plain to God's people that their sin had really been taken away. And and, and I think you see that expression Uh, uh, again with a caveat of the one who would ultimately come. But but their sin had been taken away. That's why I read in part uh, the the Psalm 103 passage. The Lord has taken our sin and separated it from us. How far? As far as the east is from the west. So far has he removed our transgression from us. So again, the goat that dies, he's the sacrifice that makes atonement, the scapegoat. Again, wonderfully pictures God's gracious removal of our sin through that substitute. And also I think the scapegoat is a is a symbolic representation of the removal of sin from the presence of a holy God, visibly seen in the goat going off in the wilderness. So again, the Day of Atonement helps us to anticipate Christ. Christ, when he comes, he's a better, right? He's a better priest, a better, he's going to offer a better sacrifice. He's a better mediator of a better covenant. Uh, he's one who's going to provide us better access to God. And his sacrifice is actually going to take away sin. Again, the writer of Hebrews, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It says, by this we've been sanctified through the offering of His body of Jesus Christ once for all. But He, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, for by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Alright? Let's pray. Our Father and God, we're thankful for this kind of quick overview here of Leviticus 16 and the principles that it teaches as it points us to the person of Jesus Christ, the better high priest that offers a better sacrifice, uh, the one who comes and gives us access, true access, true forgiveness of sin. The blood of bulls and goats could never do that. All the Old Testament sacrifices was a picture of Christ, but all the sacrifices were nothing but a picture of the one who would come, the one whom you promised to send, the one who the hopes of the truly redeemed, the nation always had their eyes on, uh, the Lamb of God the one they were looking for, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and that would be the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're so thankful for that great picture and so thankful for for so great a salvation found in our dear Savior, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.